0: If you have your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Last week, I took a, a Selah. I paused a little bit from the Gospel of John, and we borrowed a quote from Kathy Truett, the founder of Chick-fil-A, who said when they were concerned about uh, their competition getting bigger, faster, better, and stronger— people kind of got anxious and were wondering about, well, they're kind of pragmatic and looking around and being aesthetic and utilitarian and kind of looking at their numbers, and they're saying, well, we need to get bigger. And he, with foresight, said, well, if we make it better, the customers will come and demand that we make it bigger. And that had been their motto from the get-go. And you know the success story ever since. And they still don't open. They're not open today. So if I whetted your appetite, don't go to Chick-fil-A. They're not open. Um, And I'm not even advocating Chick-fil-A. All I was trying to say is, church, I get it. We've been here a year and a half. We're kind of the new kids on the block. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Kind of the new kids on the block, minus the boy band. Um, But if we're going to make it bigger we first need to think about, how can we make it better? And so we're gonna incrementally go through all the ministries and think about like, well, Lord, how can can I make the pulpit ministry better? How could I be more effective? Do I need to shorten the message? Do I need to be clearer uh, with the slides? Do I need to add things, subtract things? Do We need different guest speakers with different topics, and I know since I've been here, we've had um, a couple different conferences, and we've brought outside speakers in, and I think those have been wonderful and helpful, so I'm just always thinking, like, Lord, how could I be a good steward of my time, and uh, making things uh, better, and then trusting that the Lord will make it bigger if that's His will. You realize filling a box is not the goal, right? Fill in a box is not the goal. Growing spiritually is the goal. And from growing spiritually, God could make us safe to where then he could grow it numerically. So spiritually first, numerically second. So we talked about that. If you're in the Gospel of John, we're just kind of taking our time going through this chapter. It's not a race. Um We're in verse 14. I wish I could kind of go back and read everything up until this point. It's pretty familiar territory. So I'll just assume that you kind of know verses 1 through 3, which connect with verse 14. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Chapter 1, verse 1. Fast forward down to verse 14. And the Word. And the Bible defines the Bible. The Word was with God. The word was God. So this we read about the living word in the written word. So we read about Jesus in the Word of God, but here he's saying He is the God of the Word. Words come from the heart. Remember, Jesus said, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. But if I were to say to you, Do you see what I'm saying? You'd say, No, I could hear what you're saying, but I can't see what you're saying. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, in different times, in different manners, he spoke unto the Jews and, and the people in different ways burning bush, a donkey, the clouds. He could speak in all different types of ways, in all different types of manners, but he says, but he's chosen in these last days to speak unto us by his son. So when God wanted to tell us what he meant, he sent Jesus. In other words, you can't see my heart. Uh, unless I express to you what's on my heart. You know, when people say, hey, show me your heart. What's the heart of the matter? Uh, Just tell me what's on your heart. Well, what was on God's heart? And if we were to go down to verse 18 of, it's not on the screen. uh, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the heart of the Father, he hath revealed him. So verse 18 tells you God had something on his heart, and he had been trying to communicate through ever since the beginning of creation, And now he is finally, he's showing us what he meant when he sent Jesus. Just show me what you mean. Just show me what you're talking about. And God said, okay, I'll put skin on my words. And the skin took form in Jesus. So Jesus says later in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not what the Father looks like, but who the Father is like. And Jesus is that translation of God. God could speak Hebrew. God could speak Greek. God could speak Aramaic. But those are things that we created from Babylon after the dispersion of language. God speaks God. And the only way we're going to understand God is if he translates what he's saying. But he doesn't put everything in the written word. Jesus shows up as the living word. And now we could say, oh, I see what you're saying. God with skin on. The word. Uh, the, T-H, word, W-O-R-D. It put skin on the word. Do you see what I'm saying? you see what I'm saying? Do you see what God's saying? It would be like God saying, I'll, I'll show you my heart. I'll show you what's on my heart. Do you see what I'm saying? You, you can't see it. Okay, I'll put skin on my words. Now you can see what I'm saying in the person and work of Christ. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. And I like this about Jesus. He's the fully loaded model, right? Full of grace and truth. He's full of it. And when you think about the attributes and the characteristic of God, it's hard for us to think because we're finite, but you've got to think of them in infinite quantities. And quantities even has the implication that, well, there's 100%, so you go from 1 to 100, there's an end. But when you think about the infinitude of God, when it says that he's full of grace and truth, it means there's no beginning and no end to his grace and truth. He has all of it. Does that make... It's hard to say does it make sense because it doesn't make sense. I'm saying it and it doesn't make sense (laughs) because I'm finite. When I'm speaking about infinitude, we got to think about it in eternal terms. It's unexhaustible, the amount of grace and truth that's in Jesus. John in here, this isn't John the apostle who's the inspired by the Holy Spirit penman of the gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. This is John the Baptist. John bore him witness of him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, we'll talk about that. And you kind of already know, you know, biologically speaking, John the Baptist was six, month, six months older uh, than Jesus, born before him six months. Um, so he's referring to his eternality. Verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Of his fullness. So, all the fullness is in Jesus, and if you have received Jesus, all the fullness enters into you. All his fullness we have received. If you've received him. And verse 12 of John chapter 1, But as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. I'm going to show a short video here, um, kind of expounding on this idea. If we could get the lights on the sides. um, We're going to look at a video about the word became flesh. I hope it helps.
1: The word became flesh. The word became flesh. That is the most profound truth of all truth. But the real story is the word became flesh. John is an absolute master at an economy of words saying things that are vast and incomprehensible in very simple terms, so simple that a child can understand them and the wisest of the wise cannot plumb the full depth of them. The Word became flesh. Who is the Word? Verse 1 says the Word was with God and the Word was God. God. And this word became flesh, verse 14 says, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, without giving up any of his glory. But there is a supernatural reality going on there that John explains to us that is critical for us to understand Because the non-negotiable reality that we celebrate at this time of the year is that the eternal God, the infinite, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, everlastingly unchanging, eternal God of the universe, became a human being. That is the message. Emmanuel, you heard it sung, which means God with us. That is the essential truth of Christianity, and the most essential truth of all truth, because it is the only truth that can save a sinner from eternal hell. John writes his Gospel to get that truth across, that we would understand that Jesus is God in human flesh. Again, Matthew and Luke give us the earthly elements, the historical features. John gives us the heavenly elements, the supernatural features. The message is about the deity of Christ. In fact, that's that's John's message all the way through. And not only John, but the other gospel writers and all the rest of the writers of the 27 books of the New Testament, they all want us to know that Jesus is God. In fact, if you... Go through the New Testament, you'll find all kinds of lines of evidence. He claimed to be God. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There are direct statements about him that he is God. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Titles are given to Jesus that belong only to God. The Eternal Judge, the Holy One, the First and the Last, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Savior, the Mighty God, the Lord of the Lords, the Alpha and Omega, the Lord of Glory, the Redeemer. These are terms that are used of God alone in the Old Testament and of Christ in the New, evidence that He is God. And he possesses those incommunicable attributes. That is attributes of God's person that cannot be passed on to us, such as the fact that he is eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, sovereign, and all-glorious. And all of those things are said of Christ as well. And then Jesus did works that only God can do, raising the dead, uh, overpowering the kingdom of darkness, and forgiving sin. Jesus also received worship. We have that throughout the story of the New Testament, from the Gospels all the way to the book of Revelation. Uh, The angels disdained to be worshipped in Revelation 22. Men disdained to be worshipped in Acts 10, and Jesus accepted worship, evidence that he is God. Jesus also received and answered prayer, something only God can do. The evidences of the deity of Jesus Christ fill the scripture, but none of them are more powerful than this opening section of the gospel of John. And it gets overlooked. I think sometimes familiarity causes us to sort of push it away. We hear the sounds of it. But the most concise statement in all the Bible on the incarnation, God becoming man, are the four words in verse 14, the Word became flesh.
0: So I'd like to start there, verse 14, John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word of God came and revealed to us that he is in fact the God of the Word. I want to kind of focus on this phrase though, that he dwelt amongst us. The Greek word skino means this. It means that he pitched his tent. I think that definition is going to be up there on the screen. It means that he pitched his tent. And think about this: God is uncreated. He created everything seen and unseen. So the 93 billion light years that we know that span our universe—it leads us to the edges that we know. Which who has the time to calculate that? <laughs> God is outside of all of that, and he's going to take that 93 billion years across, roll it up like an old carpet, and get rid of it. But when it's all rolled up, the things that are seen were made from the things that aren't seen. So God, who's tucked behind that, he could penetrate it like he did 2,000 years ago when he came down and reduced himself uh, to the size of a seed. He could do that right? Um, but he could also roll it up. But this God that's all-powerful, all-big, has all the omni-attributes, he came from where he exists from all eternity, and he pitched his tent. He, this word came and dwelt amongst us something that's really kind of got my attention when speaking about how big God is and going through the book of Isaiah even in Sunday school Jerry you were alluding to passages that that we were at a few weeks ago also i was telling this to i think it was a pastor friend of mine recently and i was just saying you know what just dude we're so insignificant <laughs> we are so small And I know we built up little kingdoms and constructs in our mind that kind of prop us up and give us significance and worth. And we kind of think we're all that because I'm a little bit higher in the totem pole than this next guy at work or whatever our measuring scales are. But in the scheme of zooming out, we are so small, finite, and insignificant. The only things that gives me value is God. That he would reduce and come down and commune with me now my insignificance has significance because it's connected to the God who said, I'll come down and dwell with them. I'll put shape to my words, which is a body. I'll put skin. I'll put God incarnate, God with meat on. And he'll come down and he'll take form and he'll, he'll put himself in, in, a, in a frail tent body. I have a quote from a, a friend of mine that I'll have him come out, maybe Lord willing, in a year or two. I have another friend coming out, Frank Friedman, and he said, Neil, I heard you've had Tim Ecknow and Bill Loveless come out and not me. And I said, Frank, <laughs> I don't want to hit the church with the two-by-four on the head when I first get there. They would fire me if I asked you to come out. But I think you might be ready for Frank Friedman. Um, Jen knows. We <laughs> she's like, are you kidding? You're going to have Frank come out? He's a good guy, but he's just super animated, super animated. Um, anyways... My other friend, Steve, who's very, he's a southern gentleman. He's, he's very articulate. He could communicate better than anyone that I know. Definitely better than me. Uh, but he said this one time, and I, I'm quoting him. He said that God would come. It's kind of impressive. Any God worth their salt could show up. But what's more impressive is that he would stay. <laughs> Takes a while to think about that. He's not implying that there's other gods like Greek mythology and stuff like that. He's just kind of playing with words. That a god could show up, no big deal, but that he would stay. Because think about it. Despised, rejected, acquainted with sorrow, mocked, ridiculed. He, we're in chapter 1, verse 10. Um, says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. They didn't care. They didn't want him. None seeks after God. No, not One. Right, And that he could come, okay, but that he would stay. That's a big deal, that he would pitch his tent amongst us. So God tabernacled, he pitched his tent uh, in a frail human body to live and move among us. And we are his apex, his zenith of all of his creation. We are it. So he pitched his tent on purpose so that he could communicate and commune with us for all of time and eternity. Again, not for what he could extract out of us. He didn't come to strike a deal and say, if you do this, I'll do that. He came to give to us, not to get from us. He doesn't need anything. He didn't need to condescend down to this this low estate. But these tents that we live in called bodies are temporary at best. And I was thinking about this, that God would come down. Christianity is not... Man building a tower or a religion to climb up or to reach to God, as was in the case of the Tower of Babel. Rather, it is God of heaven reaching down to us, dwelling with us, and becoming as us. And I was thinking about this because we're going to get there later in the chapter. But Jesus is um, referred to, he's, he's talking about Jacob's ladder and that the Son of Man now is that ladder to where the angels ascend and descend. And if you think about a ladder, if you're thinking about works and religious-based religion, it's us trying to climb up a ladder to God. But Jesus came down to us, and he's going to speak to that later in in, uh, John chapter 1. But I want to take this idea of this tent, and I want to show you... Because this word that, he, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, he tabernacled, he built a tent, and that tent was that he put skin on his word so we could see what he's saying. But that skin was frail, and that skin was as ours is. It gets sick, it's, uh, uh, it's weak, it needs food, it needs sleep. We're we like big little babies. <laughs> I need food and sleep. Um. But look at this idea of that God would dwell amongst us. Look at the, this phrase here, this passage here in 2 Corinthians. For we know that if, uh, this, uh, that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on that we may not be found naked. Uh, for if while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, and not that we'd be unclothed, but that we would be rather further clothed, so that uh, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as his guarantee. Later on in this passage, you'll find a few verses down the, down the list here, chronologically, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right. So when you go to a funeral and you see the body in the grave or in the casket, uh, and I've conducted a lot of funerals, and you know, sometimes the, depending on the family, it's an open casket, closed casket, a, you know, situation, or maybe it's a graveside situation or whatever. And if it's a believer, this is much easier. I could say, you know, this is this is their their body, but this is not who they are, and this is not where they are that this tent that we're occupying is, my point is this, is that it's so frail. Have you ever been camping in a tent? Like real camping, not glamping, right? Um, I've never been to Burning Man. I don't desire to, but I have relatives that go all the time. I have one that does, uh, he does big big dramatic things uh, costumes and stuff like that and he's trying to get into Hollywood and be some costume designer he wins competitions I guess he's pretty good um, but I don't picture that as camping right from what I hear I mean when we've been camping um, you know we've, we've done a tent my wife does not like camping by the way at all her idea of camping is like not even Motel 6 I mean I would be getting out cheap if that was the case no um, So, yeah, it's, you know, full bathroom, um, stuff like that. Uh, But when you go camp, we have been camping. She has been camping. And uh, when you are camping, though, you feel kind of vulnerable. I remember we were camping in Utah. And uh, the year before something, it was reported that a bear came in and took a kid from the tent, and they couldn't find the kid. The bear came in and took the kid out of the tent. And when you're in a tent... Right? And you're in a situation. It was funny because as we were reading, uh, being naked and all that, and I immediately thought of that show, Naked and Afraid. (laughs) But I was thinking about Adam and Eve also. This is how my mind was working. I'm reading and I'm thinking at the same time. But Adam and Eve were naked and unafraid, right? Interesting. Um, But when you're in a tent, you feel so vulnerable. What? That little thin piece of nylon is just your barrier of protection. And anything that moves by with the moonlight outside, you see shadows, you hear everything. My point is this, is when you camp, you're vulnerable. But just think about, have you ever tried to set up a tent in the wind? That's a challenge, right? Um, anyways, my point is this, that the Bible uses the word tent. Our bodies are just so frail. They're just so fragile. And the thing that I was thinking is that God downgraded his house (laughs) so he could upgrade our house one day in the future. So he said, I will tabernacle, I will tent with other tents so that we one day could be clothed with God and in his presence forevermore. I want to kind of further expand this idea. Remember King David could not... um, build the temple for god and then i want to pick this up in second chronicles it'll be up here but solomon if you read this whole chapter it's also mentioned in first kings as well his dedication to the temple but will god in very deed dwell with men on earth this is a rhetorical question he's asking way before the gospel way before the cross way before the first advent of christ and he's asking this question that god answers that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He did dwell, and he wants to dwell, and he is dwelling in us. But he mentions this about the, uh, the temple. He said, behold, the heaven and heavens, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, right? The eternality, the, the, the vastness of God, because he created time, space, but he doesn't, he's not confined to time and space, He says he knew that they can't contain God. How much less shrinking down to Jerusalem and then, you know, the small little section. Even when you're in Jerusalem, you're like, really? Really? (laughs) I mean, I've been there and I've walked around the Temple Mount and I'm thinking, this, what? Okay. All right. And they're all just, you know. But he's saying, how much less? Remember, it was a tabernacle, it was a tent. When they were moving, they were wandering around, and we can't wait to just kind of put a stake in it and make this thing permanent, give it a foundation, because tents are frail and they're portable, they're not permanent. And he's saying, I want to build this temple for you, God. I understand that I can't put you in a box. But God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. You know where he dwells? No, in the hearts born again believers. But God, does, God, but God does now and forever will dwell with us on earth and for eternity in heaven. We are his tabernacle, his tent, his temple, his dwelling place, his abode, and his permanent residence. I want you to see this from Jesus's words. This is before he goes to the cross. Look at John 14. It'll be up on the screen. But even if you pick it up at the end of chapter 13, go to 14, 15, 16, and then the Lord's Prayer in 17, and then in John 19, verse 30, he's on the cross, it is finished. But before he gets to John 19, 30, he's saying all of these things, that it's his hope, it's his desire that he came to dwell with us so that he could dwell in us and with us forever. Look at what he's saying here. And I will pray the Father... Let me, let me ask you, does Jesus get his prayers answered? And he's not praying for himself, he's praying for us. He said, I'll pray the Father, he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. He's speaking after the cross. Because he has to forgive our sins so he could take that barricade out of the way. He forgave us so he could fill us. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you yet a little while and the world sees me no more. But you see me because I live, you shall live also. At that day you shall know that I am in the Father, you in me, and I in you. This is the blessed Trinity we're singing about in Sunday school. Jesus answered and said unto them, If any man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now, I want to emphasize this word abode because this only appears twice in the whole New Testament, the Greek word of it. And it appears here and in verse uh, 1 and 2. In my Father's house of John 14... Are many Okay that word mansion when you translate it from the Greek to the English from and I want you to see the, the Greek word here for what this word abode means and it only appears twice in the New Testament. Look at the, the definition of the of the word Greek Simone. Show me the monē. A staying, an abiding, a dwelling abode to make one's abode a metaphor of the God and the Holy Spirit and dwelling believers. So you could take that word mansion and write a song about my father's house and many, many this. And we could play football and we could have, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, is heaven really just about the best thing we could think on an earth? Is, is heaven just earth on steroids? So like, if barbecues are the best and football is is cool, and I agree with all that, you know, I'm all I'm all for football and barbecues. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think that's what heaven's about, right? It's got to be a little bit better than that, you know. Like, isn't it what my eye hasn't seen and my ear hasn't heard? And you know. Neither's entered in my heart. I can't even comprehend, really. If I could comprehend a mansion, definitely I'm, I'm already sizing it up. Well, this guy's definitely got a bigger mansion than me. I mean, look at all he's doing for God, right? <laughs> right? We get, we get that way. You know, like we're comparing with the Christian Joneses. Um, what I think it really means is God has a dwelling and he chose to tabernacle, to tent amongst us to give us this free gift of forgiveness of sins and this offer that he will now make your home or your heart his home if you would just but freely receive his free offer His free offer of the gift of grace, which is he will commune with you. He will come and, and he says we, plural, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will make their residence and then we could be eternally joined to the, The triune family of eternal lovers, where it's safe, it's secure, you're free to be yourself. It's a place that you could call home. And even when heaven and earth pass away, the word remains and we will forever be in the presence of the word and enjoying commune with the word throughout time and eternity. So, verse 15 John bore witness of him, Jesus, John the Baptist, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said he comes after me, as preferred before me, for he was before me. And like I alluded to in the introduction, John the Baptist is chronologically and biologically six months older than Jesus. And, um, but we find out here that John realizes who he came to bear witness to. So John the Baptist is mentioned at least 89 times in the New Testament. And I want to say this too. Remember when after John preached some hard stuff and then he found himself in prison and then they come to visit him in prison and and they're asking him questions about Jesus. And John says this, is this he that should come or should we look for another? You remember that? So John the Baptist, who Jesus says, amongst women there's not born one greater than John the Baptist. Remember that statement? kind of wrestle with that a little bit, right? I think it's because he had the greatest message because he he was the best man, so to speak, because Jesus is getting his bride and John is saying, okay, the bridegroom's here. I'm going to kind of step back and the bridegroom is now going to be introduced to the bride and he's kind of the best man, right? And so when you think about there's none greater, think about the message and the connection with what he's establishing. He's he's seeing... Jesus, who he, his whole, even back in Isaiah, was talking about the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the highway of our God. Also another deity verse. Um, so John the Baptist, though, he's in prison. And think about this. He's like, man, I had done nothing about, preach about Jesus, 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 Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, which come to take away the sin of the world. If he's so great and awesome, why am I about ready to get my head cut off? Whoa. So if you serve Jesus, everything's supposed to turn out great, right? Maybe that's the popular health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but that wasn't the case with John the Baptist. Did he lose his head? Yeah. So you have John the Baptist doubting. But my my point with this, and this was just a last-minute in-my-office-praying thought— My point is this, is that Jesus considered him the greatest born amongst women, and he was a doubter. You ever find yourself with bad circumstances saying, okay, (laughs) okay, God, are you really who you claim to be? Get me out of this mess. Change my circumstances. But John, his message was he's probably one of the most significant people at the close of the Old Covenant and at the time of the introduction of the New Covenant. And we're going to celebrate the, you know, communion here, which is the memorial of what Jesus came to do, which was to introduce to us a New Covenant. So in the law and the prophets were until John, but then the kingdom of God is preached because the preacher and the king and the kingdom has arrived. So he is a significant forerunner and preparer of Christ and his first coming. His ministry increased, but when the Lamb of God walked onto the scene, the bridegroom coming into his bride, John stepped aside and decreased. And he says this, because he was preferred before me. So, and I said this, though he's biologically older, and we, we, find, we find that out from Luke chapter 1 and verse 36. You could, get the, you could just do the math yourself. John has a greater spiritual revelation as to who the Lord Jesus Christ actually is. He's the eternal word of God manifested in the flesh. Now, John chapter 5, Jesus has some heated discussion with the religious people of his day, the Pharisees. John chapter 8, he further has heated discussions with the religious elite of his day. And I want to pick this up. In John chapter 8 because just as John the Baptist says Jesus was before me even though he's younger than me physically look at how Jesus gets himself in trouble in John chapter 8 most assuredly I say unto you and he's speaking to the Jews who don't really believe who he is if anyone keeps my word he shall never see death then the Jews said unto him, Now we know that you have a devil or a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, you shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? Hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, before Jesus. Um, and the prophets are dead. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my, fa- my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet, you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I love the statement, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said unto him, You are not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? That would imply you have to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. Jesus said unto him, Most assuredly I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. So he uses the very exact same phrase that God used to describe to Moses when he was at the burning bush. Who should I tell Pharaoh and the Egyptians who you are? He says, Tell them the I am sent you, the self existent one. So Jesus, you know, the reason he, they found no fault in him. And the reason why they crucified Jesus was what? Blasphemy. They said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. They got him on the charge of blasphemy. But was he God? If he was God, then he wasn't blasphemous. And so they always, you know, found him in situations. Now he's claiming the very same thing the one that revealed to Moses that led them out the part of the Red Sea. He's claiming to be that one, and they, they couldn't take it. They just couldn't take it. But you remember, Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down and take it up again. So it doesn't matter. He could, he could just be who he is. <laughs> the Word was God, and he became flesh, and he's communicating to people. So he's the Alpha and the Omega. I'm not going to do this, and I'm actually going to cut and edit the, the rest of this message just this, for the sake of time. But I want to say this. I, I'm going to go just A, B, and C. I could go all the way to Z, and you could borrow this if you want. But, you know, Jesus is the great I Am. He is the Alpha and the Omega, which is the A to Z. Listen to, listen to what letter A is. And this isn't exhaustive, but he's the Alpha, the Anointed One, the Author, the Finisher of our faith, the Author of life, the altogether lovely one, the all in all, the advocate, the ancient of days, the anchor of my soul, the almighty God, the amen, the apostle and high priest of my confession, the arm of the Lord, be, he's the blessed and only potentate, the bright morning star, the beginning and the end, the brightness of the Father's glory, my brother, the bridegroom, my beloved, my banner, he is the bread of life, the branch of the Lord, the baptizer into the Holy Spirit, the blessed hope and the co- of the coming kingdom. See, he's the creator of all things, the commander, the captain of the Lord of hosts, the chief cornerstone, the chosen of God and precious. He is my confidence, my counselor, comforter. He is my consolation, the chief shepherd, the circumciser of my heart. He is Christ. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the great I am. And they couldn't take it. He was trying to communicate. He is the eternal one. Well, verse 16. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. I think I'm going to just stop here. I'd like to expand on that, but I'm just going to stop here. And I'm going to end. I'll come back to this next time because I really want to take more time. With of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. I would like to say this. We aren't saved one way and sanctified another way. The same way we were saved initially is the same way we live daily, by grace through faith. So we believe here that you are saved by grace through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast but we don't graduate from grace. The same way we're saved initially is the same way we live the Christian life daily. So he's given us grace for grace, and of his fullness we have all received. So this word, this eternal God that said, let there be light, and there was light, put on skin. He dwelt amongst us, He lived as us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again to give his life to us so that he could live his life with us and through us. Grace for grace. Of his fullness, we have all received. I know it's probably a lot to swallow, but I want to break it down to you in a video.
2: beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and that word spoke words that turned chaos into order, gave the seas and skies their border. This word that spoke was himself unspoken. He had no beginning, and he has no end. He gave life to all things, and with each breath we draw him in. Each shoot that emerges from the cold, hard ground, within every bud there's life to be found. The green that springs up is the promise of life, spoken by the word who was there at the first then one day the word became flesh and dwelt among us the word who made man became man he taught in our streets and preached in our public squares he met the world's need not with hate but with care and compassion ready to demonstrate to the world his passion and righteous seal he came not to harm us but rather to heal he was in the world the world he had made but it looked right through the people saw but didn't recognize the maker he went to the cross and died the death of the unjust it shattered the faith of his disciples and tested their trust but on the third day on the third day at the break of dawn the light of life pierced the darkness death's power was gone the grave could not hold him the stone rolled away the Creator burst forth into the light of new day he showed us what his name means and that he is mighty to save When the Word, the way the foundations of creation said it is finished, it wasn't the end, but rather just the beginning. The risen Word, who came before time itself, said that everything is new. He met every tribe, people, and nation, and that means he met you.